But at the end of the day, you know, teachers are not nutritionists or chefs or gardeners or PE teachers, but they're asked to do all of this and more. And so my, my primary goal is to empower them to be partners in this wellness quest. You know, if they have the tools and resources that they need to realize the value of food education and what it can offer to academics, they can begin to connect to the subjects that they're under the most pressure to teach. Reading, math, maybe science, maybe social studies. That's my dear friend, Carrie Stroll, the school garden doctor. In this episode, Dr. Carrie shares with us her passion for and the importance of school gardens. If you're a teacher, have or know a child in a school, ask yourself what would it take to engage them in garden-based learning just 30 minutes a week. You'll learn in this episode that this kind of education is invaluable. And too often, kids don't get the kind of exposure that'll lead to healthier habits later on in life. You can help change the world and your child's education with many of the ideas and programs Dr. Carey shares in this episode. Be sure to check out her contact information, the links, and the resources she shares at solanofit.com. Are you ready? Let's go. Are you ready? You are now listening to the Solano Fit Podcast, featuring health and fitness to change your life and inspiration to live your best. Here's your host, Hans O. Johnson. Dr. Kerry, welcome to the show. Welcome to Solano Fit. Hey, you know, thanks. Before we start the episode, I'd like to get to know you a little bit better and share more with our audience about your hobbies and fun things like that. Uh-huh. We have what's called our favorite seven things in 10 seconds with a timer and a buzzer. Do you think you can do it? Uh, maybe. Okay, I'll say yes to be positive. But <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Positive energy. You got this. Okay, I'm going to start the timer on your mark. Here we go. Wait, is it? I do I pick the seven things or you're going to tell me the seven? No, things? I pick the seven things. I've already picked okay, them. That's I've circled them on my okay, sheet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here we go. Season mm-hmm. two, the wonderful Carrie, the garden doctor, garden school doctor or garden doctor? School garden, school garden doctor. School, school garden. S no, S school, school garden doctor. <laughs> <laughs> See, here I go. See, this is why I have to edit. School garden doctor. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Here we go. Favorite day. Not Monday. Not Monday. Favorite vegetable. <laughs> Ooh, uh, broccolini. Favorite color. Orange. Favorite song. Oh, I like that song, Little Boxes by, Bel- by Melvina Richards. Favorite book. Most recently, The Dirty Life. Favorite movie. Harry Met Sally. When? And when Harry Met Sally. Dog or cat? Oh, dog. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, wait, so do you have a dog? Yeah. And what's your dog's name, he or she? Her name is, her nickname, her real name we call her every day is Coco. Coco. Uh-huh, but it's short for Coquelicot Le Chien, <laughs> which is... <laughs> French. The French, French word for poppy. Yes. We named her that because she is from a French-speaking part of the world. Not she personally, but her breed. Yeah. She's about two. We say about because she's a shelter dog. We got her from the county shelter. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, now a quick skip over to, you said your favorite song was what? (laughs) There's a song called Little Boxes Yeah. by Malvina Richards. It used to be the intro song to the show Weeds. 
I know you are you don't watch a lot of TV, but there was a Netflix series called Weeds. It was about a suburban um, widow who sold pot to make ends meet. And the beginning of this show started with this song. And I know what you're trying to do here. You're trying to get me to sing it. <laughs> so I like it because it's kind, kind of in my key. Yeah, it's the kind of song my husband would say is in my key, which is not a really big range for me. But it goes, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes made of ticky tacky. And it's basically about like suburban conformity and sort wow. of that step wives kind of like I mean I wouldn't say it's my favorite song in the whole wide world but within the 10 seconds it's a pretty good pick I do like it <laughs> quite a bit because it has a good message My goodness. And, and I don't know if you did this deliberately, but that's someone who's growing something in the show and the dog is named after a puppy. Oh, yeah. So there's a garden <laughs> theme here. Yeah, I would say that's a pretty strong theme in my life overall. Through and through. So tell me, tell the audience, you have a business. It's called School Garden Doctor. You're a school garden doctor. Tell us what do you do? Well, the School Garden Doctor is a nonprofit and nonprofit seemed to be the right route to go with the kind of work that I aim to do. Um, and so I would say how it came to be was that before I um, moved to California, which is 10 years ago, I was a teacher in Milwaukee. Hmm. And my school was situated on a city block, like a, a typical urban block. And the school took up two thirds of the block. And then the other third of the block was split between a fire station and then this just square little lawn. And I always had this dream, like, whoa, wouldn't that be so cool to have a garden there? And of course, there are all the things like, well, but mostly what grows in Wisconsin only grows in the summer. But I had a plan for that because I figured, well, the firefighters, I knew firefighters and I knew that they like to garden and cook for each other during their shifts. And I thought, well, they would just be more than happy to take care of it when summer was out. But it never came to be because the pressures of being a brand new teacher. Um, and, and that was the late 90s, early 2000s when, specifically 2001 when No Child Left Behind was released as a federal uh, reauthorization of the Elementary um, and Secondary School Act. Mm -hmm. That's what it's called. Um, and, and it just, I was expected to prepare students for a test. I was accountable to the system for their achievement. And, you know, the gardening didn't really fit into that. There was no time in the day to take kids outside or, to, you know, even just escape the concrete playground. There was no value placed on that either in that location or in that time yeah. um, in space. Like our playground was all concrete, no trees, not even shade trees. Um, and so it just didn't really fit in. It didn't fit into the tremendous pressure um, in especially a highly segregated and under-resourced school. Yeah, yeah. The pressure for the grades and for the tests yeah. and everything, all of that. All of it. So when I moved to Napa, I was kind of at a loss. Like where I was, I was a city girl. Where were the familiar things I was looking for, familiar ways of meeting people? 
but I always had gardening. Gardening was kind of a, it was already a hobby for me. It was something that I was passionate about. So even when I lived in an apartment, I would grew herbs on the third floor balcony and very quickly realized that I did not know how to garden in this California <laughs> climate. I mean, I would grow lettuce and it would be, you know, going to seed. And I thought, but it's only June, but it gets so warm here so quickly. Right. I just, I really did not know what I was doing. So I signed up to become a master gardener volunteer. And I started to make connections in the community. And then in that same year, um, I started a doctoral program at UC Davis. And to supplement my income, I took a part-time gig as a garden educator. And so I was a credentialed teacher and I was a gardener. And so I thought, oh, this will be cake. Like I'll just go and garden with kids. Right. And I saw 150 kids every other week, three mornings a week. Wow. And it was harder than I thought. And I thought, <laughs> well, whoa, what? this? Okay, I have to really work at this. But, but actually it was really fun because there was none of that pressure that I felt earlier. But also I thought, wow, this could be so much more if I had like a, a stronger connection to the curriculum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that pull, I was hooked on trying to figure out why gardens were kind of this underutilized, undersupported facet of, of education. And so it became my research topic. And I quickly learned that compared to the number of studies that are done of reading or math or even just science more generally, there was so little evidence for school gardens. Wow. You know, the very few studies were done and, and of the ones that were done, most of them were like interventions, like kids would participate in a garden for a little while and then you would measure like, oh, did they have more preference for fruit and vegetable, you know, trying things or whatever. And it would be like, well, yeah, I mean, that seems obvious, but of course, you know, researchers, you have to document that stuff. But there were no studies really, or very few anyway, of like what is actually happening during the garden time. So the interactional um, space. And so that's what I studied, cooking and gardening in school. Oh, you mean the behaviors, the social uh -huh. community? Yeah, like the uh -huh. all of it. Got yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you said that, the behavioral, the social, the community, because something that I noticed was that unlike, and this is, um, I don't want to say it's a, a deficit of nutrition um, education or nutrition research, but really the focus is often on behavior change of an individual. Mm. And and eating is such a social and bio. It's not just biological. It's not cognitive for sure, but eating is social and it's sensory. And so, the, having those opportunities to engage other senses, that's what cooking and gardening really did. But it didn't. It didn't mean you had to overlook the curriculum. It just meant kids were more keyed in because you're tapping into the things they do less often: smelling, tasting, touching. You know, they have to look and listen all day long. Wow. sitting in their desks, usually quiet. Um, and so cooking and gardening just offers something completely different. So the name itself, the school garden doctor, represents basically my commitment to that evidence base. So having yeah. evidence-based practices, but grounded very much so in my personal experience. Earning a PhD takes looking at the educational system with a really different lens and then trying to use research to try and figure out one small part. And I feel like I have something to offer in, in that area. So that's how I ended up where I am now. Let me get this straight. So then you were gardening before this, the grand scheme of things even came to be. Oh, absolutely. You, you were gardening, you know, in, in other small places. So where did that, 
where did that bug, that green thumb come from? Where did the passion mm-hmm. for gardening come from just originally? Yeah, um, I think it probably really uh, originated with the way any other passion does, sort of exposure and a positive connection to the activity early on. And in my case, it was part of something we did when we went to visit my grandma. And she had this garden all around the perimeter of her yard. And it was not fancy, um, but there were many beautiful things and many interesting things, you know, to me as a, as a kid. In fact, like my grandma really had a knack for kitsch. And so she had all, she had, she had it all. She had the wheelbarrow that you, pl- or not the wheelbarrow, the, uh, the, the, what's that, you know, where you, the water well planter okay. that you mm-hmm. plant in. She had that and she had the gnome statues and the wood cutouts, you know, of like women bent over with their bloomers hanging out. Right. And then of course, pink flamingos. I don't know what pink flamingos <laughs> have to do with gardening in Wisconsin, but she had all the garden art and it just was really, it was interesting as a kid to kind of hang out in that space. And she was always happiest in that space. And so we would, you know, walk around and pick things and taste things. And those were some of my first lessons, I think, in how to compost, you know, because she would put like her coffee grounds or her banana peels or just picking something fresh from a tomato um, vine or snap bean or something. It just came to be. When I had space, I I always was just drawn to the nurturing aspect of you take this little tiny seed and it can grow into something that I can eat. I mean, like how cool is that? And it tastes better usually, you know, in, in terms of the, it hasn't traveled very far. It's right. fresh. The comparisons to what you get in the store. Yeah. Yep. For sure. So I, I find that so romantic and beautiful. Just the idea that that your love of it came from, quite honestly, what we just talked about previously, just the behavior and the community that you had with and the relationship you had with your grandmother Yeah. at such a young age that made such an indelible impression mm-hmm. that you want other youths and children and people to experience it as well. For sure. And uh, I mean, I have to say, you know, she didn't do it for her health. You know, she was not that healthy in other ways. Um, mm. She was a really heavy smoker. You know, she worked long hours. So that's kind of the interesting thing is that this school garden phenomenon has changed so much throughout history. And so for her and for her generation, you know, those were really depression era folks who they just knew how to be resourceful Mm -hmm. and they had lived through times where you had to really um, ration and literally and, and save. And so, you know, whatever the societal message is throughout history, that is the message that will be promulgated like in these other areas and school garden is just one of them. So I do appreciate that today, you know, some of the focus and some of the impact of school gardens sort of coming to be more popular again is, is that health focus that schools have with kids. What is it? Is it, is it just our affluence as a culture that has kind of allowed us to have this luxury of thinking about gardening in this new way, in the way of health and wellness and, you know, the whole organic movement and the whole, this is healthier movement. I mean, if there is anything to point to, what is behind, in your opinion, this burgeoning movement? The, there's the urban gardens and the gardens in your front mm-hmm. yard and gardens in small spaces. And mm-hmm. I mean, how did all that come to be? Is there anything that you can share with us about how this thing changed on us? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. I think that especially given, you know, the number of 
national organizations that support this effort. I think a lot of it might have to do with the information age in general, like having access to information. So knowing more about how food is grown and the impact it's having, um, the impact of chemical um, fertilizers and herbicides, what is that doing to the soil? What is it doing to our health? Um, And so it's another reason where I I just have to say I, I lean so heavily on research that I think that, you know, in our everyday lives, we're getting mostly research that's secondhand. It's it's what gets picked up or is popular in the, in the media, sure. in the news, um, magazines, and so forth. But, you know, if you really, I mean, I have all kinds of Google Scholar alerts set up, you know, like I, I track um, minimalism, for instance, as yeah. sort of a phenomenon. That's a big thing. So these ideas spread and then they get taken up by popular, sometimes figureheads. Um, and then they, they kind of become a social aspiration. Um, so take the school garden movement. You have Alice Waters, the edible schoolyard in Berkeley is, uh, 20, almost 25 years old now. That's kind of crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. And, and you raise such a really good point because there are still areas where it is considered to be this sort of luxury or, um, unattainable by the every person kind of thing. And she for sure, uh, has been criticized on occasion and I don't really want to like go too deeply into that but I've I've definitely had lots of conversations with folks who are kind of like you know a tomato is a tomato is a tomato and if you're hungry it doesn't matter if that tomato is grown in a hot house or grown on your teeny tiny 10 foot raised bed in your behind your restaurant like right. you but I think there's something to the fact that it does taste differently and if you can turn kids on through their senses first Mm-hmm. that, you know, they will, it doesn't, but you're right. Not every student, well, actually I wish every student did have this opportunity, but not every child in the home has the opportunity. Right. So if we could provide it in school, something that awakens their senses to, oh, huh. So these senses that I have are used to take an in information about the world. Now, I mean, that's like a very science standard way of thinking it. But kids just want agency and autonomy when they're little. They, you know, there's this great book called It's Not About the Broccoli and it's about picky eaters <laughs> and how parents can deal with picky eaters. And one of the biggest uh, mistakes that parents make is forcing kids to eat stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up in a in a house like cleaning your plate was a value. Yeah. Not wasting food was a value. And I get that, but some things just don't taste good to kids at certain times in their development. (laughs) And then some kids are legitimately never good. You know, like we all know people who have that aversion to cilantro or, you know, whatever other kinds of things. And so I think having them engage their senses in that way, in that space. And that, that's the thing that has changed is that that wasn't always the purpose of school gardens. So there is a time in history when school gardens were used to grow food for people who need it needed it. You know, during the war, there were, was the school garden army that were, you know, they were the soldiers of the soil, quote unquote. Oh, wow. And they actually, they were called to action to grow food for communities because all the other food being produced was being used to feed the troops. And so what happened after that was the rise of industrial agriculture, the environmental movement. And so at that time, school gardens, the focus shifted to teaching more about self-reliance and ecology 
um, self-reliance, not reliant on the big systems, the economic systems especially. And so as a movement, gardens are not new, but what has changed is the ability to network and grow the movement. And so, like I said earlier, there, there are these national level organizations promoting school gardens on campuses. There's big money being put into them. And maybe that means that they're here to stay. I mean, I certainly hope so. But the focus has shifted to introducing kids to real food, getting them physically active, putting them in touch with nature. And all of those just really play to the, the wellness piece. And so the more informed we are, the more people ask for it. And there are still barriers, you know, uh, budgeting, staffing, maintaining a garden. Those are still challenges for many schools because the institutional framework hasn't shifted, but the popularity is, is certainly still there. Yeah, I think what's so interesting is that when you were talking earlier just about how kids want to be exposed and how the infrastructure hasn't changed to yield to the trends that are happening. Mm -hmm. And while in many ways, you know, that's the job of the school to educate, to expose, it's just obvious that the institutions will almost always, by definition, be behind, having to play catch up. Yeah. That even now, the new trend is the wellness angle, the fitness angle, and this idea of taking a smaller social, social footprint or ecological footprint. Yeah, just understanding that we as humans have an impact on the environment and we're part of it, not the like lords over it. And that's a very different shift. That's a paradigm shift in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one that's helping move things along this way, especially, you know, I don't, <laughs> I take up a lot of space. And so I constantly <laughs> look at, I, so every Tuesday when, when the garbage trucks roll by, I'm like, why do I have so much garbage? <laughs> you uh, know? And yeah. granted, there's a, there's a ton of people. I'm supporting, but nevertheless, it's a conversation that I think has kind of reached a peak. Hey there, listeners. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for listening to our young podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please share the episodes with friends or family that may benefit from any of the insights shared. You can also help by leaving us a review on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice. The whole idea behind Solano Fit is to provide you with the relevant and local inspiration to help you live your best. Share with us how we're doing. We're currently working on other partnerships to support you even further, so stay tuned for that. For other news, events, or updates, follow us on IG at Solano Fit, and then make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you get the notifications each time a new episode is released. Okay, that's it for now. And I say luxury not to create division, mm -hmm. but I do say it with the idea that some people who are dealing with survival or dealing with food insecurity don't have the luxury to think about these higher needs, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I don't mean to judge, but I do mean to say that it's such a good thing that however it comes to the population, that it comes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things are top down, some things are bottom up. Uh, when it comes to a movement. And it's kind of a situation where um, when you're talking about a captive audience, kids and schools that bring together all different diverse youths from different socioeconomic backgrounds, mm -hmm. here is a wonderful place to institute something new that can help them, if not today, then maybe tomorrow. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, um, it's a big part of what fuels me is the challenge of it. Mm. That, you know, if it, if it were easy, 
it wouldn't engage me in, at the same level, you know, I mean, so my own professional growth or intellectual rigor or quest for intellectual rigor, whatever it is that to keep myself challenged, it is figuring out those questions exactly. So for instance, one of the things I do at one, one of the school gardens that I work very closely with here in Napa, um, I track all the produce that we grow and I weigh it and I report it. I report to the staff and I, you know, give periodic, uh, updates. You know, this month we harvested 12 pounds of radishes. 12 pounds of radishes, first of all. That's a lot of radishes. <laughs> but 12 pounds of radishes, and there were, you know, three different kinds of radishes. How many people even know there are three different kinds of radishes? Well, there are, there are way more than three, but the kind you see in the store, typically the cherry bells, maybe French breakfast if you're sh shopping at an upscale place. Wow. Once in a while, an Easter egg radish, right? But there are so many different kinds of radish. Watermelon radishes are super cool. But when kids are involved in planting them and then pulling them from the ground, they are in no way averse to trying them. And right. so, you know, we pull them out of the ground, we make a job out of it. Okay, you pull them. Now this other group, you're going to rinse them. And, and it's 50 degrees outside and kids are sticking their hands in cold water to rinse, give them a first rinse. And then I give them a very thorough food safety rinse inside with warm <laughs> water. Right. And then I slice them up and, and, you know, we talk about what do you think it's going to taste like? and and they talk about the language they have around, I think this one's going to be spicier because of the color or the size or, you know, they have all wow. these interesting ideas and they're not all accurate, but it doesn't matter to oh. me at that point in time. They're just interested and they're willing to try. It. So I'm struck by two things. One, you lit up when you talked about how, if it were, if it were easy. <laughs> but if, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and two, what you see, I wonder what you see in the children's eyes and in their expressions when they light up when they're doing this. Yeah. They're figuring something out, and that's what learning is, is your, your quest. I mean, the human uh, quest to figure things out, like to learn from it. I mean, that's where survival happened, right? How did people, how did agriculture happen? Right. People figured out, oh, wait, those seeds we've been gathering, like, let's plant them here <laughs> where we live. Right. right. And then we can live here. We don't actually have to move all the time to find the food that we need. And that was the domestication of crops, right? I mean, we teach kids about how seeds travel. Oh, they, you know, birds eat them and, and defecate somewhere. Like all these different things in science. But how about humans? Like we have been altering crops for a long, time. a long, long time. And so that is really valuable for kids to understand. And they don't understand it by being told it. Mm. They understand it by seeing like, wait a minute, why is this radish so much bigger than this other one? And then asking them, what, well, what do you think? And they will try to figure it out. And it doesn't even have to be edible. You know, they'll do it with anything in a garden. We have this, <laughs> it's called red cage fungus. Okay. It's, it's this disgusting fungus that literally smells like a garbage can. <laughs> and the reason it smells like a garbage can is because, I mean, I don't want to really give it away because that takes away the aha moment, but it attracts flies oh. who then land on it, gather the spores and go land somewhere else so that it can reproduce. Because what's the main goal of eating? It's to grow enough and get enough energy to be able to have your species right. carry on procreate. through yeah. reproduction. Yeah, procreate. So that's its goal. But it's the best day when I see, oh, the red cage fungus is about to spring. And I say spring because it it starts in this little like leathery white ball and then it pops open into this 
you remember when you were a kid, did you have those little capsules that you would, they were like foam and you stuck them in the water and then they grew into like a dinosaur? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that. So basically it like pops open and it's this foamy looking, spongy looking ball that has, it's like a lattice ball and it's bright red (laughs) and it stinks to high heaven. And the kids, I'll I'll like carefully, yeah, I'll pull back the um, cardboard that I have it hiding under and then they go, and they, you know, they all take a step back, but then they lean in. And they try to figure out, like, why would something want to smell that way? Yeah. Not that it has volition, but that, you know, like, what would be the reason for that? Yeah. And they just get into it. They really get into it. And it's very different from the way, you know, most other knowledge is um, promoted and, and supported in schools. Yeah. It's such an experience, such exposure, such discovery. It speaks to the human condition to discover. That's the reason why we do anything. That's the reason why we go to the moon. That's the reason why... Elon's building, you know, Teslas and, and solar power this and solar power that. I mean, and, and to expose kids to that kind of energy is not just educational, but it's also play. Yeah, it absolutely is. Because then next time they come, they enact the same thing. They go over to the red cage fungus and see what does it look like today? You know, that it's a continuation. Um, and I love the focus on play because with very little kids, you know, they're not that um, coordinated um, physically. Right. Uh, five and six-year-olds are still figuring out their bodies. So, you know, in terms of uh, delegating chores in the garden, uh, okay, do you have kindergartners sweep? Sure, it's a great job, but you got to <laughs> actually use a broom that is the right size. Some coordination here. And you have to teach. You need to teach them how to use it. Yeah, yeah. And so we do that. But then there are other kids that maybe that's just not, they're not there yet um, or not that day. That doesn't interest them. And so we have uh, a center that our, we have an awesome, this one garden, um, we have an awesome TK teacher and she's designed these dramatic play centers where whatever topic they're studying, like if they're studying weather, the kids dress up like a meteorologist and she has all these like old, <laughs> it's really funny, old equipment that she's, you know, gotten at thrift thrift shops and goodwill and stuff and they have like a fake a fake camera to <laughs> pretend like they're doing the newscast or the, the weather forecast uh-huh. and they have a whiteboard and they point to the different today it's going to be cloudy and talk about practicing the language yeah of science you know they're really doing that or when they become beekeepers and they pretend that they're keeping track of a beehive you've never seen five kids be so quiet they shh okay you get the smoker and and I'll I'll lift up the part of the hive. You know, they they actually take on the identity of a beekeeper in that moment. Yeah. And that's really, really powerful stuff. Absolutely. I mean, it's fun. It's the imagination of it all that I think mm-hmm. nature naturally just inspires. And yet it feels like we've lost something. Like like industrialization has stolen that that nature piece from our educational system. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are costs to our technological advancements that I don't think anyone could have foreseen. Mm-hmm. It's like we've lost much more than we could have imagined. And now that we know, we need to reverse engineer here. Yeah. Cooking is a good example of that. You know, people used to cook because that was what you had to do. Um, and and it's really kind of interesting to learn the natural history of cooking and, and the role it played in human cognition and, and nutrition and access to food and access to nutrients. Mm-hmm. But when you lose the practical skills to do it, you don't do it anymore. And when the market provides all the processed and finished food for you, you don't have to learn it. And so we have a whole generation or two, yeah, or two. of individuals who never learned how to cook. 
And now that is coming back into fashion as well because people realized it. And luckily, again, that knowledge um, transfer, that luckily people are figuring it out before it's too late. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, your earlier comment about the the access to this different way of of being and eating and accessing food and all of that, that even if you can't afford to shop at a certain store, you know, you, in fact, actually, most people who are not able to, or many anyway, um, shop at certain stores with certain luxury type sure. or boutique type, type items are cooking very basic staples. Mm. Um, and, and, but they're cooking, yeah. you know, because cooking actually is cheaper. If you buy in bulk and cook in big, um, you know, quantities. batches mm-hmm. of things, yep, big quantities, you, you can feed people healthily and affordably, but people are working so hard to make their dollar that they don't have the time right. always to do it, to do the shopping, to do the prepping. And so there is a disconnect and it is definitely societal at large. So it, the system itself, there's so many different layers to having, having that happen. There's such wonderful things that, that you're a part of and what you're doing and, and fueling the movement. And yet there are these macro elements, these macro forces that, I don't know, what you say, Carrie? Are they working against you or are they just stubborn? They're stiff. No, I mean, they're, as you said, like the challenge, that's what drives me. So, you know, when I was working with the kids in the garden in 2010, thinking like, whoa, someone's paying me to do this? That seems <laughs> kind of strange, but okay, go with it. Um, and it wasn't, you know, that much money, but it was, it was enough. Um, I began to notice something interesting, which was that every day when I left around noon, this, this truck would roll in. And I, I literally did not know what it was for. I had to ask a parent. I was kind of like, hey, what's up with that truck that pulls in every day when I leave at noon? And I learned that it was school lunch. Oh. And it, that blew my mind. I mean, the fact that schools didn't have a kitchen yeah. at all and were serving a hot prep meal out of the back of a truck. And this is not like a food truck, right? This is just a truck. Um, it was, that was numbing to me. Yeah. Especially given that the school community seemed to care enough about teaching about where food came from to hire a garden teacher. But then they went to the cafeteria and that's what they were being served. Yeah. And I came from a large urban setting where kids may not have been served awesome food, but there were human beings on site preparing it and serving it to them. Um, so it didn't make sense to me that kids were pulling carrots fresh from the dirt and then going to eat processed food from the truck, especially in California. Yeah, right. So this became a paradox to solve, and I knew there was work that had to be done. And luckily, at least um, in Napa, several years ago, some very passionate parents got behind um, the effort to change school food. And it's about a decade later, we have this rock star food service director making big changes to the lunch line. But those other pieces need to follow. Um, so as you were talking about the macro to the micro, the relationship there, 10 years, that's a long time to yeah. wait for that change. But you have to keep plugging away at it or it won't change at all. And so mm-hmm. I would say my work um, as a school garden doctor complements that effort by encouraging science instruction. How can you begin to understand how to read a nutrition label if you don't know that a calorie is a measurement of energy? or Promoting mind-body awareness, um, it engages children in a sensory and kinesthetic way. 
or the environmental literacy piece that you've already touched on several times. How grown is how food is grown and processed makes a big difference to not just us and our individual health, but the the health of the earth. So engaging children in the garden is just one piece of that wellness puzzle. And so what I bring to the table is that sort of theoretical and practical knowledge about teaching and learning that makes it possible to integrate it into the curriculum. The other obstacles are that curricular piece, finding time in the school day, finding teachers who have the sort of disposition and interest and knowledge to and skills to kind of make that accessible to their students and supporting them that way. And for teachers to sustain that interest as well. It's one thing for yeah. to, have a, to have a campaign. It's another thing to kind of rework the whole paradigm so that this is something that you're doing on a more regular basis. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, the teacher's main job is to teach the standards. And we have all these mechanisms in place to create school environments where learning can occur. And now we have a way better understanding of the link between health and academics. But at the end of the day, you know, teachers are not nutritionists or chefs or gardeners or PE teachers, but they're asked to do all of this and more. Yeah. And so my, my primary goal is to empower them to be partners in this wellness quest. You know, if they have the tools and resources that they need, to realize the value of food education and what it can offer to academics, they can begin to connect to the subjects that they're under the most pressure to teach. Reading, math, maybe science, maybe social studies. So that's, that's what I mostly work on is curricular integration, teacher learning, and then creating model-based programs that, you know, can create a, well, a model, just that, you know, here's a program that teaches X, Y, and Z. And you can recreate this program at your school with the right uh, mentorship. Right. My model is to empower them to do it. That's right. So, for instance, I just proposed an after-school class to American Canyon, um, one of the American Canyon schools. And basically, it's a, a sliding scale. Um, the fee structure is a sliding scale where the first time is the cheapest, but I stay with you about a year. But the goal is that you bring someone on to learn the, the course and then you take it on and own it because I'm one person, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the teach, teach a man to fish. Um, it's discipleship. Mentality. Yeah, 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 basically. Because I'm, right. like I you're said. You're going to change the world, Carrie. That's what you're going to do. Uh, you're gonna change I hope. The world. Let's see. <laughs> yes. One garden at a time. One garden at a time. What does vibe mean to you? To us, a positive vibe means feeling good. And at Vibe Solano, it's about a vibrant, healthy Solano County. It's about feeling well enough physically and emotionally to enjoy our lives to the fullest as active residents. Join the effort to improve the health and wellness of our community. Discover fun events, fitness activities, and healthy things to do. Find us online at vibesolano.com. Get involved for a vibrant, healthy Solano today. So, gosh, we've talked about so much, but what can we as a society do? I mean, there's so many big issues. There's so much going on. There's so many different causes. But this is one that you literally can plant something in your own yard. You can really have a change with your own family. What as a society can we do to overcome these obstacles or to at least help? That's such a great question. And and I have to say the answer for me um, comes best through a mission-driven approach. So, you know, when you start a nonprofit and you have to 
craft out a mission and and wordsmith it for a long, long time and get feedback. And um, it's really important, I think, the kind of language you use. And for me, it's empower. So empower a teacher or a school or a community to grow a garden if they don't already have one. And don't do it for them. Do it with them. Yeah. I've seen all too often where a school, you know, they are strapped for resources. They don't have the funding to do it. And some organization will come in and say, we'll do it for you. And I've literally seen gardens built in a day where not a single teacher, not a single student, not a single parent was involved in the build out. Well, who has any investment in that? They, yeah. they don't. And so even though, you know, we talked earlier about this rise of the the national organizations that are supporting this work. I think that's great because there are many schools and districts throughout the country that that don't have even it on their radar to continue um, thinking about wellness or even to start rather thinking about wellness or a school garden. So, you know, that that's great in those instances. But in places like the Bay Area, where people are so connected to these ideas and they see mm-hmm. it so much of it around them with the so many organizations we have throughout San Francisco, the East Bay, you know, I could name five organizations just off the top of my head, nonprofits who do this kind of work. So, you know, go to the experts and find out what has already been done and what are what are those people saying is the best way to go about it. If you consult any book or article or resource about school gardens, the first thing it will tell you that before you grow your single, like first carrot, grow a strong team Uh and together develop a plan and have a vision. And even, for example, um, the leader of the school garden arm of Slow Food USA, they don't use, if you build it, they will come. They use, if you come, we will build it. That if, <laughs> if, if you come to the table That's right. and enter a dialogue. And so find out who those stakeholders are and, you know, help source materials in ways that are long lasting and keep it simple. And, you know, it, you don't have to have a savior mentality to get a, a garden started in your area. Yeah. We started the conversation just talking about on how much of it is connected to community. And so it's apropos that it would take a village to build a garden. It absolutely does. I think that's exactly the case. Too often I've seen a garden start because of one enthusiastic parent or teacher and that person does all the work and it can't be sustained because for a number of reasons. The the parent ages out of the the, like the student ages out of the school and so there was no succession plan or, a t- you know, we see it all the time and that's not a sustainable model for building a movement. That's how you uh, build an individual sort of, I want to take credit for this thing yeah. that I've done. Um, and so if you have the means, you know, donate to one of those local organizations that supports gardening or, or better yet, launch your own. <laughs> um, I'm struck by this too, Carrie, that with the best of intentions, people go, oh, I can do it for you. Even if and I'm speaking to the people who are out there and you're motivated and you want to help and you want to change the world and you want to go do it right now, and you, but you don't want to wait to get a team together, that essentially the slow movement, the patient movement is the more sustainable one when you have people to help build it t- together. And that the fast flash in the pan is 
really just a road to nowhere. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true because it's just the mentality that you're designing a living system. You know, you, you may not, you can't predict everything that's going to happen. You might say, yeah, we're going to grow. Um, for instance, one of the schools I work closely with, they grow as much as they can um, to have produce that they harvest for a salsa festival at the beginning of the year. Well, do you know how much planning it takes to ensure that you have the right ripeness of the right amount of tomatoes on the date of <laughs> that festival? It can like, be done, but it takes some It's like planning. landing the rover on the on so, Mars or something. <laughs> it, that's exactly what like it is. It's because you you know you have all these <laughs> yes, you have all these uncontrolled yeah. for elements. You have the weather, you have the timing, you have disease, you have and so that's the beauty yeah. of the challenge is that when you get a lot of experts in the room, you're more likely to succeed. And so if if the success starts with one barrel outside of a classroom door or a couple of containers, you know, just start small and try to make it last and give the garden a name and, and a purpose and spend time with it and just continue. So I love it. I love it. So before you build a garden, build a team. Yes, absolutely. Now, specifically for your work, Carrie, how can people, how can listeners support your work? How can they get involved? I think it's really important to ask the right question of the behind why you want to support school gardens. Mm. And so without demanding, or as I said earlier, maybe a gentle demand, but without demanding, if you have a child in a school, be willing to ask the question, what would it take to engage every child in garden-based learning for just 30 minutes a week? Just 30 minutes. What would it take? Would it take a dollar amount? Would it take some some you know bureaucratic change would it take you know, what would it take especially if you already have a garden and more importantly be open to actually hearing the real answers and then seek out the partnerships to make that happen and be willing to let that work take time um, you know the the adage of um, if you want to go fast go alone when I first started working at one of the schools I work um, primarily with. Uh, that was one of the first things the principal told me. And, you know, I had all the knowledge to get the garden going, but it wasn't going to be up to me for eternity. It's going to be up to the staff. So when she asked me the question, what would it take? I told her and she listened and together we came up with a plan. And so maybe that looks like um, negotiating with administrators so that teachers get extra duty as part of their contracted time mm. to maintain the garden or to work together and seek out those partnerships. That's just one way. Maybe it's a single fundraiser that the parent club or parent teacher organization organizes that just goes to the garden. So you at least know what your budget might be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it, there are lots of different ways that can look, but that's how to grow a movement. It's just empower a few, a few folks, let them develop their passion and then build it from there. Yeah, that, that all just makes sense. I mean, there, there has to be a, a degree of community will to begin to change these very old, stiff systems. But there are so many examples out there. So when you think about resources to look toward, there are, you know, in San Francisco, there's Education Outside. It's a wonderful organization that when, how they built school gardens in the San Francisco public schools was first through a bond initiative to green the schoolyards. 
So it didn't start with a focus on school gardens per se. It started with, wow, these schools are covered in concrete. That doesn't look very nice, nor is it attractive to families. And families were, you know, choosing alternate routes to education. And you actually need kids in the seats to get your federal and state dollars for education. That's right. So that was that was a model, right? Like that's one model. Um, some schools that have lots of substitutes can maybe you get a substitute for a teacher who's really passionate about the garden and that teacher works with kids in the garden on a rotating basis. Mm. You know, there's so many different ways. So leverage those resources and find those schools. Look for districts that have websites devoted to school gardens or wellness and kind of see what is what is their model. Um, look at the all the nonprofit organizations in the area, um, Urban Sprouts and, you know, there's, there are just, there's so many that it's so easy to find a couple of different organizations. I know Sonoma has a school garden network. Napa has a school garden network. There's a statewide one. Um, there is Life Lab in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. There's the UC Davis Children's Farm. So, you know, all throughout the North Bay area, there are lots of organizations doing this work. That's right. That's right. Sounds like we need one here. We need it in Contra Costa. We need it in Solano County, all up and down California. No, this is just outstanding work, Gary. And I'm so pleased to get to speak with you and, and um, talk about this important issue. It seems to me that, like you said earlier, there's something about the food we eat. And when we connect to where it comes from, we become more responsible citizens of earth. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it, you know, there's this, I was reading an article once and I think they called it the green vitamin or vitamin G and just the idea of being outside and the health benefits of being in nature. And so I'm not surprised mm. to hear that that one workaround for the, the school district you mentioned was to green the cement junk <laughs> the school had turned into. We're all a lot better at, at being human when mm -hmm. uh, we connect with Mother Earth, so to speak. Yeah. And there's so much more evidence for that now. Yeah than even 10 years ago. So last question, Carrie, if you could change one thing in the world to make it a healthier and happier place, what would it be? I think that question has to bring it full circle for me, which is, you know, we started talking about my experience as an educator. And so I'll just say that I became an educator because I believe that education has the power to create a more just and equitable society. So I'm going to have to lean on some really great thought partners on this one. Um, one is my, my very best friend and colleague, uh, Amanda Crump, who studies international agricultural development Gosh, that sounds through important. a feminist perspective. Oh, it's, wow. it's important. What she taught me is that actually worldwide, women are the ones who do the farming for the most part, wow. but they don't have the education levels that we afford to men in developing parts of the country. Mm. And so they don't get to uh, use what they could use from the education system to put that into practice in farming. But if they did, we would probably be feeding the world Yeah, wow. in a lot better way. And the other is Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, whose TED Talk, if you haven't heard it yet, definitely listen to it. It's, it's about educating women and girls. It's life-changing. I've listened to it twice already. And what both of these uh, women posit is that in our quest to try and feed the world, we've been doing it wrong. Mm. So, you know, 62 million women worldwide do not have access to education. That would make their families and communities healthier mm. overall. 
So to put this theory into action, um, I have a garden club that I call the Dirt Girls. Love it. <laughs> yep. I'd like to see the Dirt Girls take over the world. They, you know, if they could go on the road and, and support a school garden in every place that wants one, then, you know, teaching through an apprenticeship model and becoming peer mentors and role models for younger kids and even for adults. Uh, and that's actually, it started as just a way to maintain the school garden in an hour a week after school. And I chose girls because I'm a, a proponent of single-sex education, having gone to an all-girls school myself. I understand how that can benefit, but also because nature is a gateway to STEM and women are underrepresented in STEM careers. Mm, mm. And so it really kind of started with this very practical and theoretical purpose, but it has led directly to this mission of empowerment, that it's, this is not about me or my ego. This is about making things better for any individual who wants to be part of this movement. That's outstanding, Carrie. Your roots go deep. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I'm a processor, so I, I process a lot. Yeah. And yeah. That's wonderful. Gosh, thank you so much. Now, now, now where, can, so much. Wh where can listeners find you? Where can they find you online or your website? Tell us more. Yeah, great. All over. I, have, um, I do have an Instagram um, at, at School Garden Doctor, uh, as well as a Twitter feed. And I have a website. It's theschoolgardendoctor.org. And I also have a blog, a WordPress blog. Same title, School Garden Doctor. It's a WordPress blog. And I can send you all of those links if you would like. But wonderful. especially some of my posts about the Dirt Girls. Absolutely. That sounds wonderful. Yes. So we're going to include all of the links and all of the resources that uh, Dr. Kerry has mentioned. I can't call you Dr. Kerry? Dr. You can call me. Dr. You can Carey? call me Doctor. Actually, what my mother-in-law calls me is Doctor Missy Carey. Doctor Missy. Doctor Missy Carey. Doctor Missy Carey. So we're going <laughs> to put links in the show notes to all of the resources that have been mentioned here, uh, and also some ways to contact uh, the school garden doctor. And you know, when I googled it, I think you were like the only one that came up. And so you have picked an awesome name, School Garden Doctor. That's great. Awesome. So listeners, Maybe you can give me some tips on <laughs> search engine optimization or something. Absolutely. Like that. No, no. I, I think this will be the first of many interviews um, as you embark. And then the Dirt Girls is snazzy. That's a really cool name and a cool idea. Now, is that a, an organization that people can access now, or is it just a community group that you're developing? It's a community group. Um, it is going to be one of my core offerings. Okay. So I have um, sort of three focus areas in ways that schools could access the services that I provide. I aim to have a what I refer to as a, a 2080 model. A 20% of the funding is, is through services and 80% is through um, grants and donations. And so I've been very active in the grant cycles and um, I'm about to embark on fundraising campaigns for various projects, but currently I offer um, a couple of different programs in the after-school space specifically, and a, a few of those are STEM in the garden, bird watching, or or teaching youth birders in in and around garden spaces. Um, the Dirt Girls, the Wildlife Gardener, and then one more that I'm blanking on at this moment, um, and then the other ways that schools can access the ideas is through um, professional learning. So I, I've done a lot of work with teachers. I teach teachers in a lot of different venues. 
So I will do a workshop um, at your site for any, any number of staff uh, related to whatever custom topic, but also I have a couple direct ones. And then the third way is through curricular integration. So a lot of my work is based on coaching teachers how to integrate these ideas into the curriculum that they're already teaching, whether it's language arts, um, science, you know, and the like. That, that, that seems like, ah, go ahead. What was, the, what was the one you forgot? Uh, common Core Cooking, which is both a professional learning tract and an after-school tract, and that is uh, cooking from the garden. So the curricular integration is the one that, is that the lowest hanging fruit, the idea of taking what they're doing now and then adapting it to? You would think that's the lowest hanging fruit, but actually it's the thing that takes the most time to develop. And so um, programs are actually the low-hanging fruit because you're, you're developing a space where kids can experience it and then someone else can, you know, the kids will go home and talk about it with their parents and then parents start to wonder, well, why doesn't this, this happen during the school day? Uh-huh. And then that's how that conversation starts. But they have to, they bring it home because they've had this awesome experience that they just want more of. And then working with teachers, sort of, here's the concept of how this integrates, and then the ongoing work. I mean, there's one school that I've been working with for four years, and we're still working at getting, you know, the most uh, effective curricular integration. So that's the long road. Yeah. It sounds like it's hard work, but it sounds like it's so incredibly valuable. I mean, if your grandmother had an impression on you in the way (laughs) that she did, and now you're going out to address the masses, I can only imagine how proud she would be for her to know that the moments she spent with you are being multiplied many, many mm-hmm. times over is a really a kind of a sweet thought. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. This has been an absolute pleasure, Dr. <laughs> Missy Carey. This will not be our last interview. Gosh, this has been so much fun for me and um, so educational as well. I really, you know, of course, my heart is for wellness. My heart is for community. And I do believe that essentially modern fitness has become an, an isolationist individual game. Um, but when you're talking of wellness and health, it, that's really the community game, mm-hmm. right? It's the people yeah. around you and the influences and the forces that we all create together. And so my efforts with this to spread that and to spread the idea that you're not alone and you don't have to be and that there are people, wonderful people, educated people with heart like yourself who are out there trying to make a difference. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I really Thank appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Absolutely. You have just listened to Inspiration to Live Your Best. Now be sure to pass it on by sharing, commenting, and subscribing at SolanoFit.com. Here's what's next. So within Napa and Solano, we have 75% of our families are on scholarship and we are there to help um, inspire our girls to be confident, joyful, healthy.